Hello, hello. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. But for the ghosts. In our new recording studio. We are in a new space. Well, it's not. It's a, a new, new old space. It's a new old space. We're back in our. Those who listen to the show know we took a, a summer in <laughs> our in a different space that was just located in a different room that had um, more ventilation <laughs> for the winter months. Right. And um, for the summer months, for the summer months, rather. Ooh. Hmm. And now we're back into our uh, original space, but in a new kind of format. It's a very exciting format. Things are just moved around a little bit. It's a little more comfortable. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're excited to uh, to be here and to be doing it. Um, One might say I'm thankful for it, Adam. Oh, and why would you be thankful? Because it's almost Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's almost Thanksgiving. Oh, my gosh. What a... Look at that for a segue. What a clever segue. But before we get into our our Thanksgiving, um, you know, one thing that I'm thankful for Mm -hmm. this Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. season Mm -hmm. is for the many people who like to uh, give us money. (laughs) We call them our patrons, and we're so grateful. And uh, we actually have a brand new patron. (gasps) And we, we welcomed her on the old social medias, but now we'll do our, a real life in the world of podcasting. Welcome that to uh, our good friend, Kate Elizabeth. Hey, Kate. Um, Kate joined at the $3 Hudson Valley horror level. Lovely. And thank you. And while we're at it, let's uh, let's go ahead and thank all of our, our, let's do our it. patrons. Let's thank Christina Kosha Weiss, Christian Lee Branch, Amory Mace, Sam McKelvey, Carla Crawford, and Jordan Fagan. Amazing. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all. For your, your monthly donation. Uh, if you like to donate to our Patreon, it's the easiest thing in the world. All you had to do is you head on over to patreon.com slash Machine. For as little as $3 a month, you can join our, our really amazing community. For as little as $5 a month, you get a, a bonus episode each month. And then as we go up, forward, and forward, uh, other cool stuff. Uh, our $10 a month, you get our uh, podcast uh, soundtrack. Each month, we we, we add songs to an, an ever-growing season, uh, season playlist of all the songs that kind of inspire our show and, and kind of feed into different episodes. Um, for the the Broadway boogeyman mm-hmm. level, um, you get the you get all those things, and um, you also get a sticker on those two levels. By the way, you get oh a yeah, don't forget the sticker on uh, on the on the five and ten dollar level, and then you also get um, exclusive voting power, which you're going to see in action next week. Oh man, next week's going to be a patron uh, chosen episode, so it's really exciting. Uh, after that, there's a Tammany Hall tariff for 25 a month, and that comes with all those things and a mug. Um, the mugs, we were asked if they're for sale. They're not for sale yet, but if you join the level, you get one for free. Right. So we're working on a place to house our mugs yeah, because um, we don't have a whole warehouse of merch. Um, and then uh, at our, our top tier for $100 a month, it's the Empire State Spirit. And uh, you get all those things. All those things. And you get a custom sandwich of the month. Mm. And this month, if you join, it's Thanksgiving themed. <sighs> and um, I didn't I didn't make one for Christina and I. I'm feeling very deprived in this moment. I meant to, mm-hmm. but I was so swamped. I'm going to be away for Thanksgiving week. Spoiler. Um, we're not recording it live. Um, and so <laughs> I... Their world was blown. They thought this was coming to them live every time they put it on. And so... Um, I I had like we we recorded a couple of episodes today to kind of to to in lieu of me not being here and I just wasn't able to get our our sandwich in time I meant to um so I'll probably make it up to her and do a 
a double in December. Thank you. I know exactly what the sandwich is, so worry not. For the December as well? I know, no, the November one. Okay. December I'm still making, but okay. the November one is a good one. Thanksgiving-based, obviously, um, so turkey-based. I'm very excited. And some people have asked, and these are people who are who who, who, who haven't decided to join the 100 mm-hmm. level, but they asked, you know, what if you have dietary restrictions, you're you're a vegan, you're a vegetarian? Of course. We, can, we accommodate I, all dietary I needs. have substitutions for all the things. So worry not if you, no matter what, I will be able to provide. So if you want to join our Patreon, that was a long ad, but if you want to join our Patreon, you head on over to patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and uh, do it up. We, we love our little community and we're, we're so grateful for all of them. And uh, other ways to help the podcast, you head on over to Apple Podcasts slash uh, iTunes and leave us uh, a review along with five stars uh, as five star rating. That's really, really, really helps the show. So head on over and do that. You can also give us five stars on Spotify as well as five stars on Audible and a review on Audible as well if you listen there. So lots of ways to help out the show during this very thankful month. So if you're <laughs> thankful for us as we're thankful for you, uh, head on over and do those things. Yeah. What are we doing today, Adam? Today we're doing a little bit of a, a Thanksgiving cornucopia. Ooh. Uh, just a cup. Just a few episodes. A few little stories. Um, nothing's going to compete with the crazy murders of Thanksgiving that you gave us last year. I know. So the the um, the. the, the, the fabled quadruple homicide the fabled quadruple but we, we and we, thanksgiving turkeys eaten from the crime scene oh my god you guys go back go listen if you haven't listened to that episode if you have go give it another i listened to it actually recently while i was prepping for this episode <laughs> and I, I i forgot for like 3 seconds that the Germans family thanksgiving dinner was eaten by random people yep. after they lie dead in the room yep. insane go listen to the episode it's about a year ago this week yeah. so yeah, so go check it out. All right, so um, I couldn't find a lot of information on this first one. Okay. I did find a couple of sources. And our story takes place, guess when? Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving Day in 1902. In 1902, <laughs> father built a house. That's when that's when ragtime takes place. You guys know my affinity for the musical <laughs> ragtime. Um, so there's a southbound train that was nearing Geneva, New York. Okay. In 1902, Thanksgiving. And the train was making its way towards the Marsh Bridge when all of a sudden the engineer and the fireman aboard, um, trains of the style had engineers and firemen. The firemen, you know, obviously took care of all of the 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 and the firing coal. And the okay, so they're they're stoking the coal or they're putting out fires is my I question. I don't really know. Yes and. It's yes and, right. probably. But it's standard because we're going to hear more of firemen on, on trains as a standard practice. Okay. So the firemen and the engineer are standard. So the train's making its way towards March Bridge when all of a sudden the engineer and the fireman on board hear this piercing scream. Oh. Like, Oh. Banty scream. And they're like, well, the <laughs> that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> that's, what is that? Is that the train? What is oh. it? Oh. But it sounded more human than, than squeaky than wheels. Than squeaky wheels, right? Um, and so they look up from where they're in, in their little spot on the train, and all of a sudden, um, they see a white figure oh. standing just to the east of the bridge, frantically waving its arms. Oh. So the engineer brings the train to a stop mm-hmm. because, you know, it looks like someone needed help. Right. Or you like hear someone flailing. screaming, and then someone's flailing their arms. You're like, right, that that's usually means, please save me. 
And uh, just as the train is coming to a full stop, the pair hear another terrifying scream. And as they hear the scream, the figure vanishes. Oh, in front of their, like, like they're looking they at it while it, it disappears. Yeah. Oh. So these two guys are confused as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> they're like. As, as I would be too. They're like, what just happened? So they both check in with each other and like, did you see what I did saw? Did I hear what you heard? And um, they decided to get out of the train mm-hmm. and investigate what happened. Mm-hmm. Which I don't always love as an option, but I think they felt a responsibility because right. they did see someone right. um, who looked like they needed help, and so they decided to take it upon themselves to go and, right. and check it on out. Uh, question: You may not know this, but is this like a like a passenger train, or is it? Yes. It is a pa- so they just said, "Hey guys, we're just gonna stop here for a yeah. bit. You stay put." Yeah, they're like, "Hey, don't mind us." And there's no there's no intercom, so I'm assuming right. that people are just like, "Well, guess we're sitting here for." I a guess bit. we're sitting here for a while. Yeah. I wonder if they heard the scream as well. Right. So um, they check in with each other. They go out. They investigate what happens. They look at the tracks, and everything looks normal. So like it couldn't be the sound of the track. Mm-hmm. But they, and they know they saw something. Well, I was going to say, you go you go straight for that, don't you? Yeah, and they know they saw something, right? Like that was a big thing. It's like, yeah, it didn't sound like screeching uh, uh, of wheels. Um, and it did sound kind of human, right? Mm-hmm. So they're investigating, look at the tracks, nothing. Everything looks normal. They walk around a bit to the area around the tracks, and there's no sign of anyone. So they just chalk it up to they both hallucinated. They don't know. They just nothing's right. here, and they have a they have a they have to be on time. So they they jump back onto the train, and um, weird. And uh, they head back to the train. They go on. They start it. Um, they start to make their way over the bridge. And all of a sudden, what do they hear? Do they hear a scream? Well, you guessed it. It's another huge scream, the loudest of all three. Oh. Um, so the train pulls into the station after the Marsh Bridge, mm-hmm. and the guys are so confused. They mm-hmm. have no idea what's happening. And so after they pull in, they hop off the train, and they decide to chat with some of the rail workers. Yeah. Like, hey, guys, so we're not sure if you heard this, but we heard this crazy thing. We were, we were pulling in. We, we were just slowing down to, to go over the bridge and we heard the big scream. So we right. stopped, pulled in by the bridge and there was there was no one there. Right. Then we heard another scream and we just booked it. And right. as we booked it, a third scream. Like what, is this new? Like what was happening? Right. Um, the workers then tell the pair that actually this is common. Oh, and that common. So the workers say to them, yeah, there's... There was an accident that happened, and um, both uh, the engineer and the fireman on a train years ago died when the train went off the Marsh Bridge. Oh. It was reported that the fireman's body was lost to quicksand and never recovered. The rail workers further explained that since then, a a shrieking phantom is said to be spotted on the Marsh Bridge, Every year around Thanksgiving. Oh, quicksand. Yeah, quicksand. I guess I, I, don't, I don't really associate quicksand with New York. Yeah, me neither. Hmm. Well, so I wanted to find more information about this, and it was really hard to. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw the story, and then I saw a, a blog called Dead History write about this story. And uh, I was really grateful to them because they did a bunch of work, so I didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> um, whoever runs whoever runs that 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 website is really great. Um, they did some legwork and 
did some digging and they found an article that may tell the story of this mystery train Ooh. accident. The article states that on March 29th, 1873, a train left Syracuse at 7.45 p.m. heading towards Rochester on Auburn Road mm-hmm. within half a mile of the town of Geneva. The train ran into a sluice of water which had washed out a bridge over Marsh Creek. The locomotive, the tender, and the baggage car all fell off the track and down into the floodwaters. Though through some miracle, the passenger cars stayed on track and none of the passengers or the rest of the crew were seriously injured. Mm -hmm. However, two people did die. Hmm. And those two people were the engineer and the fireman. Oh, interesting. The bodies could not be located that night. However... A difference from the story uh, that the work, the railman said, the body of the engineer Ignatius Buelte was found the afternoon of Sunday, March 30th, and the body of the fireman was indeed found, Augustus Sippel, and it was found some distance away on the 31st of March. Okay. So there is a little bit of the tall tale in the ghost story mm-hmm. that, you know, the bodies were found, they weren't missing, there was no quicksand. But they were both dead, and it's very specific that it was those two specific right. people that through um, the the years of 1873 to 1902, this mm-hmm. tale. Now, there's no real reason why there's this white figure shirking. Right. And there's also no fig- real reason why it happens on Thanksgiving. Right. Um, you know, the article in, from 1873 talks all about um, March and not Thanksgiving. Right, I was going to say, it's the wrong time of year. But either way, the spoke the tale is spoken about. Um, however, either way, the tale was spoken about for years and years uh, all around the tracks uh, towards Geneva. Wow! And um, that's kind of the the end of that story. It's interesting to me that the firemen and the engineer are the ones who died and the ones who are hearing it. Right? Like, I think yeah. that's interesting. I think that's I think it's fascinating that like. When I read these articles, no one else talked about seeing anything, right? right? The passengers didn't say they heard something or saw something. Right. So it almost sounds like, yeah. It's the just, workers. And I'm just the workers. Those specific, specific workers. workers. Yeah. It's like some sort of like heed like this warning. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just really fascinating. It feels like a really cool, interesting piece of lore that is a little bit urban legend, but a little bit truth. Like this yeah. article does exist. Um I can show the the printout. Um, uh, they they the the folks from Dead History, you know, posted the printout of it. I can show you uh, the results, and right. so it's really fascinating that it exists and that it's on this Marsh Bridge. And the bridge is really really cool. Little, I'll show you, Christine. I'll show you the the, the image. Ooh. This is the Marsh Bridge. Um, these will be on the. Looks like a place that would be haunted. Honestly, yeah, it looks really haunted. And that's the article where it says okay. that the engineer. Um, Engine oh, this emerged. For us, yeah. Engineer found dead in cab. Fireman mm. drowned. Passenger cars on the brink of chasm. And uh, this is from the um, from the original accident. Oh wow! And then yeah. So these will be posted on our socials. Oh, and is that like the search party? I guess looking yeah, for the yeah, bodies. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. So super interesting things. Don't know how they correlate to Thanksgiving, but you know, I almost wonder. I mean, I don't know how frequently this particular railroad path is used but thanksgiving maybe i don't even know if it was when it became the major travel holiday but if you think about the number of 
people traveling on Thanksgiving. Maybe it's also a frequency thing, right? If, oh, could be. I don't know. Sure. So that's my first one. Thanks. That's weird and spooky. A little spooky. spooky Thanksgiving. A little spooky Thanksgiving. I was hoping to find a spooky Thanksgiving. Then I found a spooky Thanksgiving. Look at right. that. We got another one. Okay. So this one, uh, Christina, do you know what game protectors are? Not a clue. <laughs> do you know what game is? Well. Like wild game? Oh, um, 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 it, uh, like, I hear game and I think of like fowl, right? Yeah. Right, like turkey and, and uh, pigeon and pheasant and something's gamey well no but if something's gamey yeah what basically they're things that um they're 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 animals and creatures that are hunted for sport okay sport being the operative part of the definition i guess yeah so on june 26th 1880 chapter 591 of the laws of 1880 <laughs> had been signed into law authorizing the governor of new york to appoint eight persons to be known as game and fish protectors are they protecting the game and the fish from being hunted, or are they protecting them for the hunters in order that they may they are, be hunted? They are protecting them from being hunted. Love this. Their duty, I know that's what you're asking me, uh, and yeah. I'm about to tell you it. <laughs> Their duty would be to enforce statutes established for the preservation of moose, hmm. wild deer, birds, and fish, and other game laws, and bring actions in the name of people of the state to recover penalties to punish any parties for violating these statutes. I love Even that. now, there are very strict um, hunting laws right. in the country, right? you There's some things you cannot hunt. There's some things you can't hunt. Right. Um, places where you can do it and can't do, do it. it. You know, most hunting is is not, I mean, people do it for sport, but in the sport of it, it is mostly to 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 uh, contain population. Right. right. Deer are hunted uh, most commonly because if they aren't hunted, they will like overpopulate areas of the country. I personally think that it's fine that they overpopulate areas of the country. I'm here for it. I think they're cute. Yeah, I don't hunt. I can never kill an animal. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Not my jam. Can't look into those little those um, little beady eyes with that little and, doe lips. And look, and look, kiddos. <laughs> I will I will eat animals. I do it. I eat animals. I get it. I get it. I know. But I physically cannot be the person who like, pulls the trigger to eat that animal. Then bam. Who, you, would you care what the son of the bitch was? Do you remember my cousin Vinny? No? Okay. I'm trying to do the Mona Lisa. Every now and then you say a quote. And it's a really interesting quote because um, if you don't know the reference, you know what you're saying. <laughs> you're fucked. And your accent is always wrong. And <laughs> no, but this one is accurate. This is Mona Lisa. I know. I hear you. Yeah, she's got with the little deer lips. No, she has that accent. I'm correct this time. God. <sighs> I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I it, personally wouldn't do it. Sure. But I, I don't. I don't like yell at people who do it. Right. Um, um, and, and to the point you're making about game protectors, it's also just making sure that the populations are in control, but also populations in control, I imagine, in the other direction, too, so that things aren't hunted to a, an, a point of endangerment or extinction. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like twofold, right? You're not hunting things that are endangered, you know, or will, will, will reduce to a point where it becomes, like, very dangerous for that, for that you know, breed of animal. Uh, at the same time, you know, every time I'm, da uh, I'm driving down roads at night, I get really scared, like... Sam knows I always my biggest fear anytime I'm driving down like a country road or mm -hmm. a 
non like city road mm-hmm. i just get really nervous about deer crossing like it's like one of my biggest fears mm-hmm. and i don't know how rational it is or how i don't know but I, it's something that just scares me because it's so dark and you have forests on both sides right even as a kid when i was when i'd go camping like it's something that i always got so nervous about I'm like oh, yeah. be careful i want to be careful <laughs> don't hit the deer the deer might come but no i get it because you know you're supposed you're supposed to just go supposed to just go into the deer right you're supposed to just hit it for your own safety rather than swerve but yeah. my instinct my personal instinct not that i drive but it's, if i did drive i think would be to be like <laughs> i think anyone's instinct. i think i don't think anyone wants to hit a deer right yeah. like i think you're gonna try your and also something jumps out at you you're gonna try to like you break move it, yeah, right thing so in any case um these protectors would hold office for three years they were given the power to arrest without warrant and oh. seize nets and pounds the officers were given traveling expenses not to exceed $250 annually and were paid a yearly sta- salary of $500. Right, this is 1880. 1880. Right, okay. <laughs> a total budget of $6,000 was appropriated to implement the act. Okay. On July 1st, 1880, Governor Alonzo B. Cornell uh, appointed the eight protectors. They were assigned to work for the governor and to report to the Senate. The widely accepted opinion that the taking of fish and game was a freedom to be enjoyed in unregulated manner by people was going to be a difficult one to change. The work of the early protectors was resented by many. Hmm. So protector William P. Dodge of Prospect, New York, wrote the following in his annual report. Quote, protectors were not often welcome with open arms. Instances were reported where hotel keepers at prominent fishing resorts would charge a protector who had responded to their call at the highest rates for board and boat rental. And so protectors often had to make their own shelter and look for their own pack baskets when in areas where public sentiment favored the poachers. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I say this all because the subject of this next story is someone who may or may not been in danger because of the the rigors of this job and the public outlook of the job. Okay, okay. So that's why I'm giving this background. Right. Because as someone who didn't know anything about Never this, heard I of was like, protector. why is this a big deal? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I, I find out. So by 1883, the protector force was increased to 16 men. Ooh. The protectors were given specific instruction concerning their conduct. They were expected to devote their principal time to public service without allowing any other avocation or occupation to interfere with the performance of their duty. A commissioner was assigned to oversee and manage the activities of the protectors. Slowly, the job of the game protector began to gain respect. Hmm. Indeed, it was not long before it was actually a coveted position, Hmm. often given as a political patronage patronage appointment. By By 1898, the situation drew the attention of Governor Theodore Roosevelt, who quickly publicly said he wanted protectors appointed who were proficient with gun and rod who could live comfortably in the woods <laughs> and who were intimate with the wilderness. That's your 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 friend uh Teddy Teddy that's R a, over there. That's TR. TR. That's TR as famously noted was, on the show. I was going to say it makes sense that TR was like I want I want a guy who can live in the woods and I want you to have a gun <laughs> and be able to use that gun. That sounds like TR. And shoot people with that gun. <laughs> Super um, TR right there. But this all began uh, to lead the job of a game protector to be to be quite a dangerous uh, job more mm-hmm. than before. So, so let's get coveted, in- coveted but dangerous. So let's get into it. All right. On the morning of Sunday, April fifth, nineteen fourteen. That's not Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting. There. I'm just a horrible. Person. Um, 
Game protector Samuel Taylor, 38 years old, of Bucksville, New York, in Madison County, joined forces with game protector John Willis Onieta to patrol along the banks of the Mohawk River in the city of Rome to check the area for uh, illegal duck hunters. Hmm. Moving in to investigate the sounds of gunfire, the protectors observed several men shooting robins. Guess what? Violation. <laughs> you can't be shooting at robins. They're cute. Yeah, they're not on the list of acceptable things. Um, ducks and robins. No, Can't no, no, do sir. Uh, as the game protectors had uh, approached the people who were shooting these uh, animals illegally, uh, they began to advise them they were under arrest. One of the men carrying a shotgun fired upon them, striking Ooh. Taylor in the chest and the abdomen. Ooh. He fell to the ground, mortally wounded. Protector Willis, who just missed being shot himself, drew his service revolver and returned fire. Taylor would die shortly after midnight on April 6, 1914, at Oneida County Hospital, among the first New York State game protectors to die in the line of duty. There were two suspects who were apprehended. Uh, However, they were questioned and then released, and no one was ever charged in the murder. Huh. So despite this incident, there was no shortage of men who actually wanted to do this job. Right. Danger actually was kind of like a, a sexy part of the game. And it pays a whole $500 a year. And probably more <laughs> at this point, because now we're in the 1900s. Oh. Where like that inflation grew. Yeah. <laughs> so this story, we got there. I knew we would. <laughs> takes place on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? And it's a story of 32-year-old John Woodruff of Scotia, New York. He is a rugged outdoorsman with a solid, solid focus and uh, a great use of guns. Okay. He has guns, knows how to use guns. He's won contests for shooting guns. TR's kind of guy. He is a TR kind of guy. He left his job at a real estate office, uh, the office of J.A. Lindsley on State Street in Schenectady, to join New York's Game Protector Force. He would be appointed by New York State Conservation Commissioner George D. Pratt on November 1st, 1919, having finished first on the competitive civil service exam. Hmm. So you couldn't just like do this thing. You had to like take an exam. Right. You had to, because TR wanted people who knew how to shoot guns, you had to like prove that you can use a firearm well. Right. It's no longer just being appointed because you know the guy who's in office. That yeah. You, there's like, a whole civil service there's exam. There's a whole like this. situation to right. this, a civil service exam as one will. Um, so at 7 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning, November 27th, 1919, game protector Woodruff, uh, who was only on the job for just about a month, said goodbye to his wife and his children, his children's name being Ferris and Ruth, hmm. and um, left uh, left the house that day. Mrs. Woodruff, obviously kind of nervous. Yeah. You know, this is a dangerous game. Game. Game, game. Um, um, but she brushed aside her fears. It was Thanksgiving. Um, she knew that um, her husband was doing like some good work, protecting right. and and serving, and so um, she kissed him goodbye, and um, she watched him leave their home on Forty One James Street in Schenectady, um, knowing that he'll be okay. That right. no matter what, he'll be fine. Now, a lot is not known about what happened that Thanksgiving day. Okay. There have been stories and thoughts and theories, but one thing that is for certain, above all the things that have been said, mm-hmm. is that John Rudolph did not return home that evening. <gasps> After hours passed from the time that he should have arrived home, Mrs. Mrs. Rudolph became increasingly worried right. and eventually called the police. Mm-hmm. The authorities moved 
rather quickly. The state police, which was fairly new at this point, it was only founded two years prior in 1917, joined in with the local game protectors, the sheriff deputies, the Scotia police, and they all concentrated their search to what was then the wilds of South Schenectady, Gilderland, and Carmen. Others would join the search as well, and that included neighbors and even the local Boy Scout troop. Hmm. Everyone's looking for this, per- this person. Scouts were like, we got this. Got this. We're always prepared. <laughs> um, but it was all to no avail. Woodruff was missing, and there were very few leads, if any, um, as to where he could have been. Hmm. Later the following year in 1920, Fred Ferrandino, a 21-year-old Rotterdam Junction resident, came forward as a witness and provided a statement to the Schenectady District Attorney. He stated that at approximately 11 a.m. on the day of Woodruff's disappearance, he was in the waiting room of the local railway near the Nine Mile Bridge and Lock Number 9, waiting for a trolley, when all of a sudden he saw two men near the tracks. He could overhear one of the guys telling the other that he was under arrest, Mm -hmm. as well as somewhat being heated in a discussion about ferrets, the use of which had been outlawed for hunting. Can't, you can't, can't, can't hunt you the can't ferret. Hunt the ferrets. Those ferrets are really cute. The hunter was in possession of a shotgun. The men walked past the waiting room and into the woods, but not before the hunter fired two shots into the air from a revolver. Oh. Later, assumed by investigators as an attempt to get his hunting dogs to come to him, the two men disappeared into the woods. The vague description of the hunter included the fact that he was a foreigner who spoke with an accent. Foreigner in quotes. By I was going to say, this is like the the, the typical go to, especially in this era. Like, and, you know, I think was, he uh, he sounded like he was a foreigner. Right. Oh, well, it must be that guy. Yeah. No, it's kind of wild. The number of uh, foreigners. Yeah. It's like running go- around it's, committing it, crime. Yeah, it's so a go to. It's so uh, xenophobic. Anyway, go on. It is xenophobic. However, the incident would later be discounted as mm. there are conflicting reports of Woodruff being cited later that evening. Oh. Aside from that report from Ferrandino, nothing else was found. There was still no body, no answers, wow. no clues. Things took a turn on April 3rd, 1921, 16 months after John Woodruff had failed to return home. Wow. And you'll find out what that turn is. When we get back from the break. If you ever look at our logo, you may notice a cute, furry, black and white creature hanging out the window. That's Ted. When he's not hanging out inside the New York Missing Machine, Ted is enjoying treats from BarkBox. BarkBox is the dog-obsessed company that's devoted to one goal, making dogs happy. It's a monthly subscription, totally customized box of themed toys and treats for your furry friends. BarkBox provides the best products, services, and content for pups and their people. Every box brings your dog more than $40 worth of toys and treats. Your first box ships immediately. Plus, BarkBox offers a 100% happy guarantee. If your pup isn't happy with their BarkBox, they'll work to make it right. So are you ready to spoil your pup with a BarkBox of their very own? If so, head over to www.barkbox.com slash NY Mystery Machine. 
If you use our exclusive link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, valued at $35, when you sign up for multi-length plans. Okay, okay, Tedward. I'll say it again for them. Head to www.barkbox.com slash NYMysteryMachine and get your pup some treats today. All right, we're back. And uh, last we heard, um, we have been looking for John Woodruff. Uh, and we can't find him. Can't find him. Can't find him anywhere. It's been a couple of years. Nope, not at all. It's been a year and a half. Yeah, sixteen months. Well, you round up. I don't. I wouldn't round up. I would a missing person. <laughs> oh, well, I guess. <laughs> but time actually matters. <laughs> time matters in missing persons cases. Uh, that's a fair point. <laughs> so sixteen months later, April third, nineteen twenty-one, George H. Barrett. A railroad car repairman from Rotterdam was hiking the woods and hunting near the bed of the creek near Nine Mile Bridge on Amsterdam Road, New York State Route 5. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he saw something in the bed of the Rotterdam Creek. What Barrett saw, what he found, was the remains of Protector John Rudolph's body. Oh, no. Two weeks in a row when people find bodies. Yeah, in a creek or a river or a thing. You hate, hate to finding, see it. <laughs> you don't want to find a river. I don't. That's another thing I'm afraid of. I don't Rivers? Wanna I don't want to find like a dead body someplace. Oh, oh yeah, no, I don't want to find dead bodies. That's not what I want to find. No. Deer and dead bodies. No, thank you. <laughs> D&D. <laughs> the authorities reached out to his wife, Mrs. Woodruff, telling her of the findings. Of course, she was devastated. devastated. They continued to question her, though. Now that there was a body, right. um, it looks like there was foul play, so they need to know more information. Did your husband have any enemies? Were there people against him? What was happening? And so um, she said that her husband's life had been actually threatened at least once. She said, quote, in the summer of 1919, he received a letter, the contents of which he refused to disclose. Um, and in another report, I found that he received the same letter mm -hmm. and he did read the letter and mm -hmm. the letter in the letter it said, I'll get you oh. and I'm not afraid of you. Oh. And then it said, then she said that the, she would watch her husband with great concern, uh, take that letter and tear it up saying, well, they're never going to get me. So it's interesting. Ooh. Two reports. One said right. that she didn't know what the letter said. And this report was very specific about what the letter said. Uh, both reports say that her husband did indeed rip up the right. the letter. Kind of wild to me that she waited until they found the body to be like, oh, you know, there was this one thing that was kind of suspicious and yeah, weird. So weird. <laughs> Should have mentioned this maybe Someone 16 months was ago. was actually angry Bradley, at Yeah, him. now that you mention it. Authorities from the state police, the Scotia Police Department, and the Schenectady County District Attorney's Office, as well as Governor Nathan Miller's office, worked on the case. The governor then decided to put all the efforts uh, through one person and directed the Conservation Commission to assign Game Protector and Confidential Inspector Delbert Spienberg of Catskill to now lead the investigation in full. That's a hell of a name. I know, right? We haven't had a good name in a while. Delbert Spienberg. All they had to go on was the following information. Woodruff's skull had been smashed open. They still had his hunting boots, some other clothing, a gold watch, Conservation Commission identification, some Conservation Commission related papers, and a holster for a thirty-eight caliber revolver, um, 
And those are all the things that are found in the remains. Mm -hmm. The revolver itself, however, and John Woodruff's 68 conservation badge were missing. Interesting. The remains were taken to the office of Coroner Alexander G. Baxter, who determined that Woodruff had been killed by a blow to the back of the skull made by, quote, a powerful man. Given Woodruff's skill with the revolver, as well as the physical abilities that he contained, it was assumed that the assailant had to have jumped him from behind. That mm-hmm. it was a sneak attack and that it was not a formal fight. Right. Because in a formal fight, he probably could have took him down. Right. He was great with his pistol. He was a strong guy, very athletic. Um, so right. So, and the way that the head, the, the blow on the head looks like it, was came, it came from something behind. Yeah, right. Uh, Speedberg worked truly hard to figure out who would be the the person who did this, but in the end was unable to find the murderer. All leads went cold. Mm. John Woodruff's remains were finally buried at Vale Cemetery in Schenectady. Um, and like losing their husband and father was super catastrophic to the family. Yeah. They couldn't survive. Um, the family um, was only getting about $50 a month. Mm as a stipend that they were receiving from the Conservation Commission. Right. Uh, and because of this, they had, they eventually lost their house. Oh. A descendant of the family, a great-grandchild, um, spoke and spoke highly of this and, and spoke in length about this, yeah. saying that, you know, she couldn't afford anything right. um, wow. because of what was there to do. Um, the case remained unsolved for years, and the investigation was all but closed until around 26 years later. Oh, in February 1947, the state police reopened the investigation based upon a new lead that was provided from the FBI Buffalo office. Two men walk into the Buffalo office. Sounds like a joke. Two men walk <laughs> to a Buffalo office um, on February 7th, 1947. Uh, they tell Robert Stone, the agent there, that their stepfather claimed that he and an accomplice had murdered a man in the woods in Schenectady about 20 years before. Reportedly, their victim had attempted to arrest his stepfather for shooting a bird illegally. They said their stepfather claimed that he had tied the victim to a tree, and following a severe snowstorm, the victim died of exposure, but also claimed that he had killed the victim with a blast of a shotgun to the head. Interesting. Also, kind of crazy when people brag about committing murder to... People always be bragging about committing murder. I don't know. If you didn't want to get caught, why are you telling people? There's a few stories that we'll never cover in this podcast unless we do a random podcast about when John about the idea that John Wilkes Booth survived after um, the the farm, the, the burning yeah. of the farm, and that um, in years later he would tell people that he killed Lincoln. I'm like, why? You, why would you, even if you survive? Why right. would you be telling people? You you survived this long, why right? Tell people, it's such an odd choice. Such an odd choice. What the investigators found interesting uh, about this whole testimony was that on Thanksgiving night in 1919, there was indeed a severe winter storm, which led mm. investigators at that time to believe that perhaps John Rudolph's body and his remains were buried in a snowdrift someplace. Oh, interesting. Okay. Also, when interviewed by investigators in 1947, Spienberg stated that his observation of Rudolph's remains in 1921 noted that a portion of his skull had in fact been shot away by what appeared to be a shotgun. Okay. So it's not necessarily that someone smashed like, them. Smashed, it could have been shot. shot because, right. Okay. So it has to be it, right? Case closed, murder solved. 
I well, think you're going to tell me no. No, not so fast. The stepsons both take lie detector tests, during which one of them claims that they had made up the story in an attempt to get their stepfather out of the way due to a family dispute. Hmm. Based on that, the state and local police investigators could not make an arrest. Interesting. But lie detectors aren't admissible in court. So, like, why wouldn't you go f- investigate further anyway? I don't know. All right. I'm just reading, uh, you're just reporting the facts. I'm, I'm reporting Sorry. Facts. Investigators continue to work on the case, interviewing Mr. Ferrandino again, mm-hmm. who stated that a photo of the stepfather from Buffalo was not the man he had seen with Rudruff in 1919. So that also further is okay. the, the evidence against that. His, their dad just maybe murdered a different guy. <laughs> <laughs> the district attorney even offered to exhume Woodruff's body if enough evidence was found to warrant it. But um, the investigation, once again, went cold. Mm. And in the, two th- in the early 2000s, a rumor emerged uh, of a deceased Glenville man who had told his wife that he had killed John Woodruff. But the validity of that story remains super unconfirmed. Okay. And uh, sadly, the killing of game protectors did not end with the murder of John Woodruff in 1929. Um, game protector William Kramer of Queens, New York, was mm. also murdered uh, by a gunshot. Um, he and his partner... Uh, had attempted to arrest songbird hunters in the woods uh, by the shores of Jamaica Bay um, near what's now JFK Airport. Oh, and okay, um, yeah. they um, they were shot. And um, he was shot, rather. Uh, Kramer was shot and killed. Um, but unlike anyone else we talked about in this story, right. his murder actually was tried and sent to prison. Well, that's good. Wow. So we have no idea still who killed Woodruff. We have no idea. Ready for a hot take? Always. And I, there's a lot of holes in this one. There always are. <laughs> Do not say his wife. It's going to say his wife. Why, why his wife? I can't decide. Um, I don't have enough facts, but it's weird that she waited a whole year and a half to mention that, you know, he was being threatened now that you say it. Yeah, you found his body. Yeah, uh, yeah You know, I seem to recall he once got like this really threatening well, letter that he destroyed. So we don't even have it. Where, where's the letter? Oh, he destroyed, he destroyed it. it. He tore it up right in front of me. I know. I know. He he tore it up. He tore it up. I didn't want me to read it, but didn't mind me seeing that he was disturbed by it enough to tear it up. Or um, he did want me to read it. And I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure anymore. It's been so long. I Why didn't you know. mention this last year? Um, what? But my hot take on your hot take is um, the motivation would have been really silly because they end up losing their home. Yeah, and, and I didn't they, say it worked out well. Yeah, no, it didn't work out. <laughs> I, I, I refute that one. Okay. Um, I don't know who it was. It was someone. It's also interesting that... Uh, I don't doubt. I think in the end, it's someone he tried to arrest yeah. and went south. Well, it's interesting because last year, you know, the motive for the Dermon family murder was sort of up in the air, but uh, spoilers, uh, we eventually solved it in the in the in the summer, if you recall, during our, our final well, episode. Our recap episode, yeah. we did solve it. And the proposal was that it, it had to do with like basically this guy, the neighbor who had game right chickens on his property or had wanted some sort of gaming situation game game getting a cut of stuff. So like it is, it is interesting to think about around the same time, right? Within just a ten year period, it is. And it's wild that, um, yeah, that it's it hap- kept happening too. Yeah, well, that's depressing. Do you have anything to uh, to lighten the mood? To lighten the mood. I do, Adam. Oh, good. We're closing got a, out. Got something. a real bit of fluff for you. Ooh, I love a good fluff piece. We got ghosts. We got murders. Got ghosts. Got murders. And now I want you to imagine that imagining you wake up. It's Thanksgiving morning. 
have breakfast with mom. That's nice. And then a mere few hours later, she is nowhere to be seen. Oh my God. <laughs> you call, believe it or not, this is the happy story, folks. Um, <laughs> you call relatives, you search the town. Ma! <laughs> Where you at, Ma? <laughs> And for I'm not sure. Listeners haven't given me enough information to know if they like me screaming or not screaming. Because this season I've done a lot of screaming off off microphone. Yeah, why it, am I the only one getting it, yelled? Because I do it off microphone. I try. I've gotten you, better. You do. I've gotten better. So I, I, I don't know if, if listeners like my screaming off like this. But, <laughs> but let, let us know. Let us know in the comments. We don't promise to change anything necessarily. We, we clearly we don't. We've gotten <laughs> feedback on the show and changed, and we've changed very little. Nothing. Very little. Uh, <laughs> but we still want to know. Kind of curious. Um, uh, so yeah. So so you you know after you shout all over town for her, you still can't find her. And so this is exactly what happened to one poor family on Thanksgiving Day uh, in 1942. So Thanksgiving Day 1942. We're going to tell the story for the record now that you have the setup. More or less from the perspective of the missing person, which is maybe a little bit unusual. Oh, I love that. Um, so Thanksgiving Day 1942 was on November 26th. On November 27th, at about 12.30 a.m., a woman shows up at a YWCA on 18th and Arch Streets in Philadelphia. So for folks who don't know, especially because this is, you know, theoretically a New York podcast, um, those cross streets put you somewhat (laughs) centrally located in Philadelphia. So you're uh, walking distance from the major museums to the northwest, like the PMA. You're not far from Rittenhouse Square to the south. um, And you're pretty close to things like Reading Terminal Market and City Hall. Um, The woman is described as having been well-spoken, cultured, intelligent, and middle-aged. And she walked in. um, And... she approached a staff person, a certain Miss Mabel Chambers, who was the secretary at the YWCA at the time, and said, I've been walking, 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 and can't remember anything, and I'm very tired. And so the woman, whom the papers very quickly began calling Mrs. X, Mrs. X, that's a little um, Mr. F reference from Arrested Development, no? All right. I never watched that show. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. It's really good. Well, Highly recommend. Good, so yeah. um, well... Uh, Mrs. X was described as having soft brown eyes. She wore a black seal coat, a gray felt hat with a maroon band, silver rimmed glasses, and black kid gloves. And so all around, pretty well dressed. Pretty well dressed. She stood about 5'5", weighed 130 pounds, had dark curly hair with bits of gray. She could not remember her name, her address, her family. She had no idea where she was or where she was from. And she had no idea what she'd been doing prior to walking, walking, walking. Um, she did have with her a black patent leather handbag, but it didn't have any ID or other identifying clues, just some keys, a handkerchief, and about $12 cash. She also had a diamond wedding band um, on her hand, which presumably led the papers to call her Mrs. in that Mrs. X nomenclature. Miss Chambers wisely called the police, who picked up Mrs. X and admitted her to Hanman Hospital with amnesia. Um, again, this, for those familiar with Philadelphia, this is um, or was the primary teaching hospital for Drexel, I believe, at the time. Why are we still in Philadelphia? Because it's only theoretically a New York podcast. I don't know. Hold on, Adam. I promise we have a New York connection. Um, <laughs> um, she was put under the care of a Dr. John Van Mater. Um, and though very lucid and clear-minded, she had simply no recollection um, and didn't even realize that there was a war going on at the time. So she completely, like, missed out on the fact that World War II was raging. That's weird. Um, over the next few days, there were a lot of different tactics they used to try to jog her memory. Her fingers were slightly discolored, so they sat her in front of a typewriter thinking maybe that, that had something to do with 
what she did, right? But she had no idea how to use it. They gave her newspapers to read in hopes that something would click. Nothing. They printed her photo in papers and circulated it. Nothing. Um, about 100 people did step forward to come in in person, I guess, and try to identify her. But no one, once they saw her, was like, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. Um, they even tried saying all the male names they could think of in case it reminded her of her husband, which oh, is yes. kind of fun. I kind of like the idea of them sitting there going, uh, Bartholomew? No, we did Bartholomew. Uh, Bob. Jebediah? Did we do Jebediah? Jebediah. They go through the entire album. It's like Bob, Brendan. Butch. Brandon. <laughs> Brayden. Brayden. <laughs> um, and um, apparently she was just this lovely little, little lady being like, I'm sorry, I wish I could help you. And we're like, no, we're trying to help you, woman of God. Um, and then something extraordinary happened. A fellow patient at the hospital asked for her to help them um they asked mrs x if she'd clean their dentures which is an interesting thing clean my dentures. <laughs> would you mind cleaning my dentures woman i've never met and who's here as an amnesia patient but she obliged and all of a sudden her memories came flooding back oh my god <laughs> um and so a dr john ross was tending to a patient nearby and she called him over and per the philadelphia Inquirer on december 7th 1942 uh she said this it seems to me that i once worked in the office of a dental technician I think his name was Dr. Stern and that he had an office outside of Brooklyn. I think my last name was Whipper when I worked there. It was a few years ago. And so Dr. Ross pulled out one of those blessed, now basically defunct door stoppers known as the Yellow Pages and looked for Dr. Stern's in Brooklyn. No luck. But there was a dentist, a Dr. M.N. Stern in Forest Hills. And when Dr. Ross called, Mrs. Stern, the good doctor's wife, picked up and said that until five years ago, her husband had an office at 839 Fresh Pond Road in Ridgewood, which, if you know your outer boroughs, is Queens, but on the Queens side of the Brooklyn-Queens border, so close that sometimes people will talk about it as being Brooklyn, which it's not. Ridgewood is not Brooklyn. It's not Brooklyn. Stop. Stop. Stop it right now, Ridgewood. You're not. You're Brooklyn. in Queens, and you should be proud of that fact. For for one of us in this room, you're proud. The other one in this room, it's sad. <laughs> Take whatever side you want. But you're not Brooklyn. But you're not Brooklyn. Um, so, um, at that point, uh, Doctor Stern, um, went back to to Mrs. X and asked if that address rang, rang any bells. And not only did it ring bells, um. She was able to draw the inside of the office. And in fact, Mrs. Stern, the doctor's wife, did confirm that they had once employed a woman named Whipper. There it is. Um, so at that point, what she could still only remember was waking up Thanksgiving Day, having breakfast, and then ended up in Philadelphia. She said, I don't know how I got to Philadelphia. I have no relatives or friends here. I don't remember what became of my wallet or my spectacles case, which were marked with my name. Would have been helpful. Um, and so with this information, police were able to triangulate with New York City officers. It seems that her brother, a William R. Whipper, had reported her missing sometime on Thanksgiving and sure enough was able to collect her, our Mrs. X named Emma Biederbeck, and bring her back home to 6904 58th Road in Maspeth, where she lived with her 17-year-old daughter, Dorothy. Um, and I'm a bit of a completionist, but um, right after this on this happy update on the 8th of December 1942, um, there's a few extra runs of the same information, but then she disappears from the, the newspapers. And I was really hoping that someone would be able to tell me, like, what the fuck happened? Yeah, what happened? And so I have no idea what caused her amnesia, how she got to Pennsylvania. I did track her down to the 1950 so census. Weird. She was still living at 6904 58th Road in Maspeth. Um, she's listed as widowed, although the person that I suspect she was once married to um, was still alive and listing himself as separated at the time. So I think that might have been like a saving face thing. Um, and she was making artificial flowers, but no fucking clue. How she ended up 
did she just walk all the way to oh Philadelphia? My God, it's so weird. Isn't that weird? It's the weirdest thing. Isn't How that crazy? You... And then she cleaned someone's dentures <laughs> and said, oh, oh, Maspeth. <laughs> I live in Maspeth. <laughs> what a weird story. Isn't that wild? What a way to end. And... What a weird Thanksgiving cornucopia. <laughs> There's a weird train ghost. There's game murder, game protector murderers. And this lady goes missing, ends up in Philadelphia. Just walking. Hot take. Ready for it? Yeah. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. Aliens. Yes! Yes! It explains missing time. Missing time, not knowing how she got there. Yep. Being very tired. Being very tired. You know, maybe it's a screen memory. Maybe maybe the reason why dentures helped jog her memory was like, I don't know, they cleaned her teeth in the spaceship or something. Could be. I'm, look, I'm here for people. this. I'm here for it. See, I support your hot takes. That's you do. <laughs> you always support my hot takes. I don't support yours <laughs> enough. That'll be, that'll be something I do for the new year. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well... We're wishing you all a happy and, and healthy and safe mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Don't run into any ghosts. No. Don't run into any gain hunter um, killers. Don't don't forget where you are and where walk are. all the way to Philadelphia. And uh, we're back again next week, uh, leading up, uh, you know, into our our, our, our our through our winter months. <laughs> and um, as always, if you have information, you have ideas, you have thoughts, especially about this weird yeah, missing please person. tell us if you are a descendant. Oh yeah! Can you tell us what the fuck happened? What happened? Head us up on our socials at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram and Facebook, at NY Mysteries on the Twitter, um, or you can email us long form at nymysterymachine at gmail dot com. We're also working ourselves, uh, or I'm not even sure if Christina knows this, but we're working on a TikTok, so that's going to be coming. What? That's coming. I didn't soon. know this till this very second, yeah, guys. It's coming soon. I made a decision. What are you going to do on TikTok? I don't even know yet. Okay. Ask us what you want. What do you guys want us to do on TikTok? <laughs> TikTok is the way of the future, so I'm told. I'm told too, but it doesn't. The algorithm doesn't get me. The algorithm gets me in a weird, in a weird way. Gets everyone else in a weird way. Why doesn't it get me? What's wrong with me? Why doesn't the TikTok algorithm get me? Come on, TikTok. To let us know what's wrong with Christina and why the algorithm doesn't get her, <laughs> hit us up on our social media. Ah, <laughs> uh, live and out of maze. I'm Christina Marinelli. Have an amazing Thanksgiving, and thanks for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. Ooh.